guys, it's Will, and welcome back. Today we are transitioning into our new month's theme. This one, vulnerability. And this isn't a new topic. Anyone who's watched Brene Brown's Netflix special or considers themselves to be woke, I mean, vulnerability has been a part of the vernacular for a while now. But we're choosing to talk about it now because it seems as relevant as ever for our industry. First, well, considering everything that's going on as we try to connect and collaborate as a community. Listen, for a long time, it's kind of been a thing in the restaurant industry that we always want to present our businesses to the world as if we're doing really well. No matter what the morale is of the restaurant, no matter how many covers you're doing. I mean, there was a time when we were doing like 20 covers in the restaurant and someone would ask me how we were doing and I would say, we're crushing it. It was just kind of a part of the culture of our business. You always wanted to present yourself as being on fire. It's almost like one of those nightclubs back in the day that would have a line of 20 people outside. And once you got in, there'd be four people inside. No one ever wanted to present themselves as being anything but the hot place, the place that's in demand, the place that people want to be at. And I get it. Although one of the opportunities we have in this crisis is to change that. Because listen, A, no one is crushing it right now. And the sooner we're all able to put our egos aside and have the confidence to name that, to say it out loud, the sooner we are to come together, to collaborate, to do things like the Independent Restaurant Coalition, Roar, all those other things, such that we can come together, support each other, help one another, and fight as a collective to get the relief we need. But perhaps more importantly, vulnerability is more important now than ever as it pertains to how we lead. For a long time, when a server was promoted to becoming a manager at one of our restaurants, it was always a thing that they wanted to present themselves to the team as being perfect, as having all the answers. They felt that that is what would earn them respect. But that couldn't be less true. People want to follow the person that owns up to their mistakes, that is honest when they don't have an answer that's willing to criticize themselves. Because when a leader is willing to criticize themselves, people are that much more willing to receive criticism from them. It translates even to how we serve a table. When someone asks us a question and we don't know the answer, there are those out there that make something up. And people normally know when that's happening. And there are those out there that say, you know what, I don't know, I'm gonna go find out. Expressing vulnerability earns trust. And you can only be an effective leader if the people you are leading trust you. Right now, no one has the answers, or at least no one has all the answers. So anyone that's scared of just admitting that, of being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I have anxiety with all the uncertainty. I don't know exactly what right looks like right now, but I'll tell you what, as a team, we're gonna figure it out together. Well, I just don't think they have a chance of succeeding. Right now, as a community, Being vulnerable enough to ask for help and acknowledge that we're all suffering through the same difficult times and we're all having similar problems. Being vulnerable as leaders to say out loud that you don't have the answers, but to commit to your team that we're going to fight like hell to find them together. It's the only way we're going to get through this. And hopefully, if we can hold on to that when we do get through this, I think we're going to be a better industry. And I think we're all going to be better leaders for it. 
Our guest today has never had a problem expressing vulnerability. And over the last month, she's leaned into it, perhaps more than ever. I'm excited to have her here. I hope you are too. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do, 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 do. Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Do, 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 do. The Weekly Our next guest is someone I've come to call a friend because of her appearance on the Welcome Conference stage back in 2019. Well, then just because she's an awesome person. She's also a remarkable speaker, an accomplished sommelier, a restaurateur, a TV host, a voice for the industry, and so much more. I think she's pretty awesome. I think you will too. Alpina, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Aren't you supposed to say welcome? Yeah, welcome. Yes. welcome. I'm supposed to say welcome to you. <laughs> I receive your welcome. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Let's start with a bit of a level set. I always like to do this. It is, we are like a week and two weeks away from Thanksgiving. I'm in New York. You're in Chicago. It was just announced not too long ago that Chicago is shutting down indoor dining again. And so... Just where are you at with the restaurant in general? Like what, just a, a quick check-in. What's going on in your yeah, world? So right now? we're now moving into phase two, the situation, the second wave, I should say, not phase two, uh, the second wave. And, you know, this is a very different sort of feeling that we had like the first time we got shut down, which is back in March. I mean, it doesn't have that same level of, oh, okay, well, we'll be back in two weeks and I'm just going to enjoy my time at home and you know, when you tell a restaurant person that you don't have to come to work for two weeks, you're kind of secretly giddy because <laughs> you're just like, oh, okay, <laughs> vacation. I wonder what this is going to be like, you know, but that the, the sort of like the, because we didn't have the information, I literally thought back in March that we, like I said, we would back in two weeks and it would be fine. You know, this is my first pandemic. What do I know? Yeah. Uh, but now the feeling is much heavier. It has definitely more sort of um, a weight to it. There's more fatigue tired frustration because didn't we do that original shutdown to avoid having to do it again? And so there's just a lot of questions like, how did we get here? Why, why wasn't things done to prevent it? And I think this just, there's an increased level of anger amongst restaurant owners right now, feeling like for a near trillion dollar industry, what we contribute 4% to the GDP that we're basically just being hung out to dry and sort of the sense of like, you know, we're, we're being forced to have like bake sales to keep ourselves going, you know, like asking for GoFundMe for our staff. So it's just a lot of anger, a lot of frustration and just sort of like not comprehending why people aren't wearing masks and, you know, why, how did we get here? And I, I'm just frustrated because also it's sort of like, we've known about this since March and we still are not at the level of testing where we need to be. Because the data that we are using to determine, okay, we need to close down these restaurants is the positivity rate. But if you are not testing the population at large, that positivity rate is off. Because if the criteria being used to distribute sort of this limited supply of tests is, well, you have to show that you're sick, right, in order to get a test. Mm -hmm. Well, doesn't that skew your numbers? 
And then also sort of how the governor has broken down Illinois. So I'm in Evanston. Our positivity rate in Evanston is 4.9%, which is manageable. But for some reason, we're lumped in the same region as like Tinley Park, which is 30 miles south of us. And their positivity rate is like, I think, I didn't look recently, but last time I checked, it was 12%. I'm like, how is this part of the same region? You know, and so I think the nuances that are needed and the sensitivity and just the understanding of what restaurants contribute to our economy and just sort of like blanket, okay, you got to shut down. It's just not understanding how we work and what we contribute and what shutting down means to us. But on the other hand, I'm also a you know, student of history. And during the quarantine, the first quarantine, I mean, I read the 1918 pandemic. And pretty much everything that happened in 1918, it's a modern version of history repeating itself. So I suspected based on the messaging from you know, the federal government of not wearing masks and not man, I'm like, we're going to end up here again. And so, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, thank goodness I took the time over the summer to prepare a carryout program to make it easy to test, you know, this is what works, this doesn't work. Um, so at least in the sense of uh, moving now into the, the sort of second wave, I feel, you know, we're going to be able to, we're going to try to do the best we can, given what I have learned of, you know, what best practices for carryout. I'd love to go back a little bit because one of the things I've found, and, and you said, you tell a restaurateur they're going to get two weeks off, they're giddy and excitement, <laughs> and not even knowing what that's going to be like. So many of the people in our world in that forced pause learned something new about themselves or gained more insight about what they want life to look like on the other side of this. Did you find that with space and time to be introspective that there was anything you're you're going to kind of re-enter the world with whenever we get to the other side of this that you didn't necessarily have as much of before? Yeah, it's interesting. I I learned that not knowing what was going to happen to the restaurant, this is before the PPP or talking to the landlord or, you know, even if the restaurant was going to, I mean, you know, once you get into like week eight, you're like, am I going to even have a restaurant to go back to? Mm -hmm. And the thing that I noticed was I didn't have that consuming sense of fear. And it was that I, I realized that I had become so much more w- aware of my own resiliency because having already closed two restaurants, I knew what was around the corner. And yes, it would be horrible. It would be terrible. I mean, it would be devastating. But I also knew that I would get through it because I had already gotten through it. You know, I've closed two restaurants. I know what that looks like. So what I was able to do was once we realized, okay, we're going to get this PPP loan, you know, we, t- we, know we, we, we talked to the landlord, we made all of those adjustments. I had that ability to think clearly because I wasn't burning my energy on fear. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to sort of harness this creativity, this sort of, um, you know, part of my brain that was sort of like, okay, what works, what doesn't work? And I looked at it as an opportunity because here you have a chance to basically reset your restaurant. You know, like if I wanted to like sell bubble gum all of a sudden, I could sell bubble gum. I mean, nobody would question. Of course you're selling bubble gum. It's a pandemic. Why would you not be selling bubble gum? We have to buy bubble gum somewhere. And so, you know, really it was just this like, we're never going to get this opportunity again. And yeah, I hope we don't get this opportunity again. But, you know, what can we do from a place of opportunity rather than the from the perch of fear? And you have to kind of ask those questions. And so, but that takes a clear head. 
that's mm-hmm. not consumed by fear of what if I fail, because I know what that looks like. And so I think that, and also like for before the pandemic, you know, I was carrying around this like way to shame. I even talked about my welcome conference talk, you know, about like, oh, just that feeling of like, yeah, I close, feel like I feel this, that, whatever. Like, how did it close? And then you go to thank God it closed. <laughs> Because yeah. I don't know what I would do right now if I had three of these to worry about. <laughs> and so, like I said, you just become aware of your resiliency. You become aware of sometimes things just happen and you may not be able to make meaning out of it right now, but it will make sense eventually, you know? Well, you know what's interesting and something you just said made me think of this is I think one of the things that is a strength and a weakness for most great restaurateurs is that we are in some way, shape or form control freaks. We like feeling a a profound sense of control over everything. And what's hilarious and perverse about that is we work in a world where so many things are outside of our control. And I've talked to a lot of people who perhaps have wanted to do work on themselves over the past few years to be less controlling and to be more understanding that there's a lot that you just need to roll with the punches. And this season in our collective experience has certainly moved people down the road of addressing that part of themselves more quickly than we would have perhaps otherwise been able to. Well, you know, you bring up a really good word because, you know, when you said that, you know, we want to talk about like vulnerability and I was thinking, what is the definition of vulnerability? The definition of vulnerability for me is a loss of control or the absence of control, or the feeling like you can't control it. You know, to make yourself vulnerable means that you are not in control of what's about to happen to you. Mm -hmm. And you're perhaps able to just say that out loud. (laughs) You know, whatever. And, And actually, once you kind of accept that, you kind of take the you take yourself out of the driver's seat, but then you also sort of give you the permission of like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, it's just, it's a very sort of, you know, Zen place to be when you realize there's nothing I can do about losing my livelihood right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be able to laugh about it. I, I, I mean, but this has always come naturally to you. I feel like at least since I've gotten to know you, I mean, you gave a very vulnerable speech on the welcome conference stage about your struggle between your career path and the terroir of your culture. And listen, it was moving and it was honest. And I think a lot of people were really able to relate to it. And so where do you think that openness comes from? Because it seems to come very naturally to you. I think I think it comes from my sense of hospitality because you want to make sure that people feel taken care of and that they're not alone and that they sort of feel a sense of just this warmth and graciousness. And, you know, I think that's one reasons why so many of us are drawn to the hospitality industry because we want to make people feel good. And I think when we do open ourselves up and we share this place of, you know, like these stories about ourselves, and that's the comment that I got from so many people was you, I felt like you were speaking to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that it has this sort of butterfly effect because if it, 
awakens that sort of sense in them. Maybe they'll do it for somebody else and they'll do it for somebody else and they'll do it for somebody else. But, you know, for me, it was the the biggest compliment that I got was, oh my gosh, I thought I was the only one that felt that way, you know, or, or you really just nailed so much of what I've been feeling. And it just totally made it worth it. I mean, that's why we share because you want to make people sort of feel like they're not alone in this journey that, you know, others go through it too. But I do think it's something that, leaders, even in the hospitality industry, can struggle with because I think there are some that believe that once you get to a certain point of influence or once you've received a certain number of accolades, that people expect you to have all the answers. And so people pretend to have all the answers even when they don't. And the the flaw in that thinking is no one is going to follow someone if they don't see the same level of imperfection in that person as they see in themselves. Right. No, because it's, it just feels it's so true. Well, I think if you look at like what makes a, a great political speech, and if you notice, like the speeches that probably move up the most is not about policy or tax law or this or that. It's really when they talk about their grandmother, when they talk about their childhood. It's talk about the memory of their mom, like going to work at you know five in the morning and it's freezing cold and you could see like the steam coming off her breath. Like those are the stories that connect us because you know maybe our mom did that, and it gives you that sense of you know how I feel. You know what it's like to be me because we have that shared experience, and I know that you're going to fight for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that have you ever noticed that about political speeches? They yes, always I like, do. You yeah. know, it's like <laughs> it's like you can like you can see the wallpaper peeling off the wall. Like those are like the great speeches. It just yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you. I was on the phone with a mutual friend of ours, Kevin Bame, earlier today, and I think one of the hardest parts especially with you guys in Chicago is opening, closing, opening, closing. Okay. That's system. Like it's hard for the systems. It's hard for reordering. It's hard on so many different levels, but it also brings a ton of challenges as it pertains to your team, right? Bringing them back on, having to furlough them again. And he was distraught today because he was going to have to go and furlough his team again. And granted, this is due to nothing he did wrong. No mistake that he has made. But he was he was wearing it in a very, very heavy way. And I would just love to hear, I'm sure you've had a lot of similar back and forth, back and forth with the people that work for you. How have you navigated through those conversations? Well, I think that sort of feeling that you have is it's like closing your restaurant because no matter what happens, in a, it's not going to open up the same way again. You know, like things change. And it's sort of like grief. Like the thing that they don't tell you about grief is once you go through grief or it goes through you, really, you know, you don't go through grief, you allow it to come in and then it goes through you and it has its way with you, but you're not going to be the same person on the other side. And I think that sort of sense of grief of knowing that some of you may not come back, you know, we're not going to be the same way again, like it's going to change us. And just also not knowing what to tell them. It's not like, okay, we're going to remodel and see you guys in three weeks and I'll see you soon. But it's not knowing if this is goodbye forever. It's not knowing if there's going to be an employee relief package, you know, from the government. It's not knowing, are they going to be able to take care of themselves? You know, it's just not knowing what you can do to make it better because you don't have all the answers. And again, it's just, we're all just so vulnerable in all of this because we have no information. Hmm. If anyone follows you on Instagram, They've seen some posts over the last few weeks. And anyone who's not aware of this, Alvin has 
in the wide world, let's just name it, like one of the most profound badasses that exist. You became a master sommelier at 26, the youngest woman to ever achieve that. The only person of South Asian descent to ever become a master sommelier. And over the last few weeks, there's been a different type of vulnerability I'm seeing from you as it pertains to the court of master sommeliers. And you wrote this in a note to me as we were finding the time to do this. And I want to read it because I was touched by it and I want to unpack it a little bit. I keep going back to how you can't spell culture without cult and what happens when group thinking, particularly in a restaurant or hospitality situation, taps into our vulnerability and how there is a difference between tapping for excellence versus exploitation to do harm. Let's talk about that because I think it really digs into something about our culture as an industry and the opportunities we have to come out of this better than we went into it. Absolutely. I remember talking to Laurent Gras about what makes a three-star Michelin restaurant. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said that he can smell three stars when he walks into a restaurant. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he said that there's a culture there. There's an energy, like a three-star Michelin restaurant. You can feel it in the air and everybody sort of works around this sort of culture. Right. And and I was thinking about that. And the court was very much the same way. There's this culture of integrity and excellence and hospitality and humble service and, you know, in the service of the guests and a lot of humility, like the word humility keeps getting thrown around. And I had just seen this Nexium documentary about two weeks ago, and I watch a lot of crime podcasts. Don't ask me why. (laughs) (laughs) I don't watch the crime podcast. I listen to the crime podcast, but I'm very much fascinated by criminology because I think it's another aspect of psychology. And I do believe that we as good restaurant people have to have a fundable understanding of psychology because within a split second, we have to determine what is it that this guest wants and how can I deliver it to them? You know, we have to read people and we're with people all the time. I mean, we are in the business of psychology, right? And so I'm fascinated by people. And so this, I was watching this Nexium documentary. It's about the uh, Keith Renier and how these, you know, people were manipulated and it ended up being like a sex cult. And I'm watching this and I'm like, oh my gosh, these poor women, how could they let that happen to them? And of course you're sitting there as you're eating your, you know, ice cream watching this going, that would never happen to me. Right. Yeah. And I just forgot about it. And then all of a sudden this article comes out in the New York times with these women. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is like, this is, this is horrible and devastating. And then, and you're talking about the article that came out about the court. Correct. Yeah. The, the Julia Moskin article. So, and so then I talk so about that just for a second for those of, so the New York times did an investigative article that they've been working on for months. And this is a follow-up also to another article that Julia did about a year ago about uh, Anthony Kailan and uh, alleged sexual assault um, against the women that he was mentoring. He was leveraging his power and control and connections in the business and using that to influence women. Um, and basically these women felt like they had to go long with these advances. Otherwise, you know, they felt like he would blackball them and they wouldn't be able to to get a job. Um, and so Julia followed up on that article, but now focused on the Court of Master Sommeliers and, you know, wrote about 21 women coming forward. I think it was 24 actually. And then a half a dozen male Master Sommeliers are named in the article, allegedly leveraging their power and their influence um, and putting women in this position where they felt like they had no choice but to go along and give in to these sexual advances. 
even though they said that they didn't want to, but they didn't, you know, felt like, okay, well, I guess this is how you open the doors um, and get the information because a major problem with the master sommelier exam is a, a lack of transparency. And so, you know, I'm reading this and this is an organization that has been part of my life over half my life, you know, I mean, for 25 years and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And then there, these words keep getting thrown about secrecy, lack of transparency, not being able to go somewhere, getting stonewalled. So I started like, naturally you're thinking to yourself, like, has there ever been a situation where I felt this way? And then I started doing like the math in my head and, you know, it wasn't, sexual intimidation, but it was definitely mental intimidation. And I remember when I first, my first interaction with the court was when I took the advanced exam at 20, I wasn't old enough to drink. And then I came back the next year and passed the whole thing at 21. And then the local newspaper did an article about me and said that I was 20 when I first took it, even though never up until this point had anybody asked about my age and actually another now MS called and vouched for me and said, she's fine. And the, yet yes. that person didn't get in trouble. So then I started basically taking an inventory of my relationship with this organization. And I realized, oh my gosh, I've been stonewalled. I've been asked to apologize when other people have not. I have been made to feel less than seen. You know, anytime I've tried to engage, I've been sort of basically pushed aside. And, you know, for a very long time, I actually was kind of estranged from the court. I mean, I used the title. I used it to make money and to make connections and, you know, I work hard for it. But nonetheless, I also actively endorsed it too. You know, by using the title, I sent a message to other women that there is a place for you in this organization and you'll be able to, if you do the work and you work hard enough to do what you need to do in life. You know, and of course I'm asking like, how did nobody come to me? You know, like nobody picked up the phone and I thought, well, that's because I wasn't there. You know, like I wasn't there and there was an article come to you, come to you like what to say, that? like this was happening to me. Like this is happening. Is I this see. normal? Can you, you know, like I, I just, this doesn't seem right, but I have like, you know, I've nowhere to go, you know, or even just being within the vicinity of seeing a woman, you know, like me seeing a, maybe an example of them, you know, what they could be. But more importantly, what they did was I felt like that initial shame that they put on me where they found out that I was underage when I first took the test, they suspended me for a year. Hmm. And, you know, to have that as your first interaction to basically be told that the board of directors is talking about you and they're weighing to see if you still can take a part of this, you know, take part in this organization. Um, I was told that, you know, part of my penalty could be that I would be banned from the court. You know, that's scary. For something that that they didn't do their due diligence on. It wasn't yeah. my fault. I mean, yeah. I just followed whatever rules they set out, you know, and, and actually after that, they now, uh, they put in a new rule that they, you'd have to send in a copy of your ID. So, <laughs> you know, you're welcome. I did your work for you. But even then after I paid, became an MS, even though after I proved that I deserved a seat at the table, I was still made to feel like, you know, you have, they wanted a version of me that was safe. They wanted a version of me that was edited, that didn't make too much noise, that behaved, um, even when I passed my test, the day I passed my test, which should have been one of the happiest days of my life. And in many ways it was, you know, I was the first woman of color to pass the test, the youngest woman, but none of that was brought up. None of that. Well, I was told to behave. 
So hmm. you, you pass, you're now a master sommelier. And that means that there's a great deal of responsibility sitting on your shoulders. All eyes will be on you. Uh, please watch your behavior. That's what in, they the, in that moment. And you talk about just the psychology of this entire thing. Yeah. You think there's something wrong with you. You think yeah. that you're dirty. You know, yeah, I was about to say in that That's, moment, does that elicit anger or is it just the shame, kind of thing that shame, shame, yeah. shame that you did something wrong, shame that you were inappropriate, shame that you were too loud, you were too something, like I said, dirty. You know, that's how I felt. A tremendous amount of guilt. And, you know, you don't realize because you're, I was so young, you know, you're 26. And, and basically it does like a number on your psyche that every time you walk into a room, you have to basically prove that you're not a troublemaker, that you're, you're not loud, you're not arrogant. So you make yourself smaller. You know, you make yourself smaller. And I actually, um, I never actually told anybody this, but I don't use the initials after my last name. You know, if you ever notice in any of my correspondence, it doesn't yes. say Alpina Singh, comma, MS, mm. right? Because I just felt like I wasn't, I didn't deserve it. Or I just felt like I wasn't wanted or the fact that I was never part of the organization, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you said this before our role as the people in charge of an organization or the ones creating the culture is to make people feel a sense of belonging, not put the onus on them to prove that they belong. Correct. Yes. Yes. So that, you know, like I said, after reading this article, it just awakened me to my own repressed rage because now I feel like with everything that I've done in my life, open three restaurants, TV show, you know, this, this, whatever, and also just age where you're just like, Ugh, I just don't care anymore. I don't care what you think anymore because I didn't do anything wrong. You know, and I've proved myself beyond the title that I am a worthy professional in this industry who's contributed a great deal. And, and I think that once you have sort of that body of work behind you, you know, you can feel the freedom of dropping the title because you know that your work stands for itself, but it also allows you to rage. <laughs> yeah. because there's no fear of retribution it's like what are you going to do to me i've already made my career you know i've already made my name liberating about that oh it's fantastic like i don't need you you know like i don't need this aggravation i don't need to be treated this way and so like even up to this year earlier this year after the george floyd thing happened i got together with a few of my colleagues and you know we basically created this manifesto of actionable items to you know foster more inclusion and diversity and I actually came up with the idea to start a diversity panel because I do a lot of speaking engagements and I work with companies and I'm often brought on to speak from the perspective of diversity because of what I do as a sommelier. You don't see a lot of Indian women running around as sommeliers. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, like I know like this is something that is sort of, um, you know, it, it needs to be addressed and incorporated about how we become more inclusive. And it wasn't very well received, uh, but about a month later, after another article goes viral about uh, a candidate, Tahira Habibi, who shared her story about how she was made to stand up and referred to the other master sommeliers as masters. And as a Black woman, obviously, this is oh. highly offensive and highly painful mm -hmm. and hurtful to anybody to have to stand up and to refer to somebody as master is the it, it is so in the opposite direction of hospitality that it, it's it's beyond the word offensive you know it's beyond the word offensive 
so then they, of course, formed the diversity committee <laughs> and they, they named the co-chairs. I sent three emails basically pleading my case to please let me serve on the diversity committee because I want to share my story and I want to pay the path forward. And I was denied. So you tell me. It's sort of like, well, OK, I was. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's frustrating. Yeah, and all of this led up to, and you alluded to it a moment ago, but just to make sure that uh, this point is made clear, you just resigned from the court. I mean, you you, you gave up a title that you worked super hard for, yeah, and what, like yeah. 3% of the people that take that test pass it? 3%, yeah. And because so, you just realize at some point, if you're not going to let me serve on the diversity committee, that means that you're not going to take my words to heart by serving on a board. And if you didn't hear me before, what makes you, I think that you're going to hear me now. And if I can't be an active part in helping this organization change, then there's no room for me. If you don't feel like you're even being seen by your own organization, you have to keep banging your head against the wall, you know, then, then why stay? Why stay? You know, and part of me was like, you know what, it's worth the fight because you have to do it for the men and women that have worked so hard up until this point and they want to finish what they started. But did anybody ask them what they wanted? And so I had these really sort of open, very vulnerable conversations with uh, with with candidates. I'm like, what do you want? What do you want? And they all, you know, a lot of them were like, I just don't feel like the court really takes into our perspective what it's like for us. And, you know, we're asked to make all these concessions and spend all this money and to go through these hoops and challenges, but they don't even want to know our opinion inside of things. You know, and I, I was talking to a friend of mine who was talking to a black wine professional and he said something that was so devastating to me that I, you just couldn't unhear it. But he said, it's like, you guys are trying to save a Confederate statue, hmm. you know, or hold a wedding on a plantation. Like basically you need to take apart the entire organization, dismantle it, remove the foundation and basically build again, build new, you know, and build something better. And, but built on the bedrock of equity, fairness, transparency, and truth, you know? And so. Well, I want to ask you a couple of questions just because in the, in the spirit of vulnerability, I saw your post when you, when you kind of announced your resignation and and there was so much support and goodwill from the people that commented, but two questions, one, okay, we've articulated the liberation that came with that decision and, and all of that, but that must've been a really hard decision to make. And, or maybe it wasn't, I guess I would just love to know what was going on in your head because that is, it's a big deal to achieve that and to let it go. Maybe it came easily or did it, you know, honestly, it it wasn't a very difficult decision because I think once I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of my colleagues that, you know, we you know a lot of us are on the fence, you know, and a lot of us are on the fence. And I said, listen, you know, I think that we all know we all have that red line in the sand. And once we cross that red line, we're going to know because your heart is going to be filled with the decision that this is what I have to do. And that's exactly what happened to me. You know, one moment I felt this way, but then I crossed that line and all of a sudden you don't go back. Like you, like I said, you can't unhear certain things, but really what it came down to was sticking to my truth. And it was, I said that no man, woman, title or organization has the power to control your life or to control who you are as a person. And then I also said, okay, but I don't know who I would be without this title because it's such a huge part of my life for 25 years. And I'm like, but those are contradictory statements, you know, and if I'm going to say that I'm going to stand with these women, if I'm going to stand with my black friends, if I'm going to stand with my gay friends and, you know, people of color, and, 
you know, then I have to be willing to stand on my own and, and to basically now show a version of what you can be without a title to, to basically write your, your own, you know, story of what, how you see wine and how you see hospitality. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. Now it's easier said now because I basically use the title to open all these doors. So I understand the hypocrisy in that, but you know, I feel like really what we need is not an organization, but we need a community. And, you know, to our part about that difference between cult and culture, culture enriches you, you know, culture, you know, makes you grow. There's this sort of like, you know, it's fertilized with possibility and hopes and dreams. And, you know, you feel like you're part of this movement that's moving in the same direction of good intentions. You know, cult creates this atmosphere that you can't go against the status quo, that -hmm. there are these silent actions, these insidious actions, I should say, these insidious, you know, sort of, um, actions that make you feel like it's not safe for me to speak out because I'm going to be ostracized. And I feel like for me, the way with the court, the the interactions that we had in a, in a sort of insidious, you know, I highly do believe unintentional way. I don't think anybody set out ostracize me on purpose, but it's just the way it's structured. You know, I just felt like I couldn't speak. I couldn't talk. I couldn't say my truth. Like, because I was, had that fear of losing all of this, you know, of being basically banished and sent away. And, you know, and we as human beings have this sort of profound need to belong and connect, but to, yeah, for me, it just wasn't a very difficult decision at all. It really wasn't, you know, I have a lot of, I think that the most difficult part truthfully was I didn't want to send a message to my friends that decided to stay because there were so many people that I love in the organization that they were doing something wrong by staying, you know? So I was very mindful of making sure that I did it in a way that was respectful, but also in line with me still being able to speak the pain that I felt, the hurt that I has been caused to me, the heart that's been caused to these women and anybody else that's been made to feel less than seen by this organization. But at the end of the day, just because I've left and I don't have those initials after my last name anymore, doesn't take away from the fact that I still have done all this work, that I have this body of work, that I still who I am as a person, all that still stands. Yeah. You know, and I think in a very, very, very different way, there's a lot of people who are having like crisis in identity through this, those people that have lost their restaurants. And uh, so many of us feel that our identity is rooted not in who we are, but what we have done or what we have accomplished or these things around us. And there is something beautiful well, I mean, about reminding yourself that yeah, you are who you are without You any- are who you are. You know, it's this, I mean, you know, you know all too well about this. You know, when yeah. I when I read that, you know, you were moving away from 11, 11 Madison Park and, you know, we've seen the documentaries, we've seen how much energy you've put into this and your love and your passion and everything. And, yeah, there's got to be that question, but will I still be Wilgadara yeah. if I leave 11 Madison Park? And like, yes, you're still Wilgadara because basically everything that made that restaurant, you already had inside of you and you brought that energy in. And basically it was this creation and this energy. And when you leave, you're a different version of Will, but nonetheless, you're still Will. <laughs> right? yeah. And there's catharsis yeah. and the recognition that regardless of... Yeah. Whether I own the restaurant anymore, that the story will always be mine. 
And but I got yeah, absolutely. But I, the thing that I have to say that I admired most about you know kind of what you're doing here is you're taking the time to figure out who that change version is before jumping into something new. And you know I'm just so grateful that you do have that ability to do that because you know you don't realize how much you've changed until you give yourself the time to figure that out. And to go back to earlier in our conversation, I think that's what happened to me during quarantine is to have those three or four months of just silence to let it settle in that, wait a minute, I'm not the same person now that I've closed two restaurants, you know? And then that's sort of the, uh, I think the end stage of, of, of grief is understanding, like I said, who that change version of you is. I think I'm grateful that I have taken the time. I will say that were it not for the pandemic, I wouldn't have. I was very close to signing oh, wow. good leases and starting really? a company only because I'll tell you to the point before, like my identity, I'm, whether it's Will Gadara of 11 Madison Park, I was Will Gadara, the guy that owned restaurants. And there was almost an instinctual need to return to having those restaurants uh, so that I wouldn't feel rudderless. And I'm so grateful that I didn't do that then for the reason that I want my next chapter to be defined by the thing that I'm running towards, not the thing that I'm just returning to. Or running away from. (laughs) Yeah, sincerely. And so I I think to the point of silver linings, and I mean, it's part of my nature as an eternal optimist that I always look for the silver linings, but that one definitively is one that's existed in this for me. And plus you got to take an airstream on the road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> Let you me, got a dog, a dog yeah. named Butter, right? Butter, I got Butter. a dog named Butter. <laughs> I want to ask one more question and then we and then we'll move on from the court, but just because I want to understand what you're saying. Before you said I was surprised that people never came and talked to me, but then I realized it because it was because I wasn't there. What do you mean when you mm-hmm. say you weren't there? I wasn't at the examinations. I wasn't actively involved. Oh. Um, and so it wasn't until uh, when I opened, right after I had opened the boarding house in 2012, that I got back into the exam proctoring process. But for a good seven, eight years, I really wasn't present. You know, I mean, I, I sent in my check and whatever, didn't ask questions. You know, it is what it is. But when I opened the restaurant, I had so many servers that came to join me because they wanted to pursue the master sommelier exam. And so I felt like for me to be a good mentor, um, it was important for me to have a better understanding of how best to prepare them by seeing the exam, you know, because I can sort of guide them. Yeah. And then the the kind of segue there and the last, last thing is what I love about what you said is when you're talking about the red line. And like, once you get over that, you need to react. And by the way, that's easier said than done. I think a lot of people have a built-in intrinsic ability to keep moving the line because it's easier to justify, oh, wait, maybe I didn't draw the line in the right place. Maybe it was actually meant to be here. But you made the decision you made because that was the only thing you could do to speak your truth. But what's your hope that the impact of that action will have? How do you hope that that will inspire people to either stand up for themselves or is there a hope? I think it's, well, hmm, I haven't really thought about this, but I would say my initial sort of thoughts on that question is that you don't need a title to love wine. 
Yeah. You know, like you don't need a pen to say you love it or to pursue it or to study it. You know, there's so much information that's on the internet now. I mean, there's so much that's changed. And again, it's, I think that we need to change from the word organization to community to take in all kinds of different perspectives from wine, you know, enjoying wine, different voices, you know, different flavor palettes, just different price points, different styles. It's just not just one thing. And just like I said, I mean, you have the natural wine movement now, and they're very much excluded from the conversation in the court. You know, we don't pay attention to natural wine, you know, but that is a, a worthy perspective. So I feel that Anybody who feels like they love natural wine, but maybe they're thinking, well, the court doesn't pay attention to that, you know, but I may not be able to get my credentials and get a job. They should just put that all aside, pursue what you love, you know, and, and do what you love and, and, and create a voice for yourself, create a platform. You know, I, I don't know if I told you this story, but right after I got off stage, I went, I went to go sit in my seat. Uh, Seth Godin handed me an envelope and mm. it was, you know, I pulled it out. He's like, it'll make sense to you when you sit down, why I gave this to you. And I had made this reference to Oprah in my, my welcome conference talk. I was waiting for Oprah to come down from the sky and to give me permission. <laughs> right. So I opened it up and it says, Oprah's not coming. Oprah's left the building. You need to pick yourself. And the, the top of it was a, a Seth Godinism called Pick Yourself. And it was a story about how we're all waiting for permission from some other outside entity for us to move forward in life and to take the chance and to fulfill our dream. And it's like, Oprah's not coming. She's left the building. Her show's over. Pick yourself. Uh, and it's so profound. I mean, I because, love Seth Godin with every right? ounce of my being. Every <laughs> right? time I hear a story so him, I love him even more. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's so right. Because now you have YouTube, you have Squarespace, you've got podcasts, you have Instagram Live, you have all of these platforms for you to be able to get your message out to find your audience. To be the and most fully realized version of you without having to comp compromise yourself for the sake of some cult. I think the message I'm hearing from you is you don't need a title to feel a sense of self-worth. No, you don't. No, it's just, uh, you know, and I think the other thing is it's coming from that place of what I am, who I am, what I have to say, the perspective that I offer, is it worthy of sharing? And that was probably the biggest reward that I got from the welcome conference sharing my talk was hearing people say that what I had to share was so worthy. It was worthy to them. Hmm. You know, it wasn't worthy to everyone because they don't have that same sort of perspective and feeling and the message didn't really resonate. But for the ones that it did resonate to, it was so impactful, you know? And so that's what I'm saying that you just got to find your audience you know, like what you have to say may not make everybody engage, but you're going to find your tribe, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what I'm saying. You just find your tribe and that's culture. Culture is you're all in that sort of same sort of, you know, swarm of like a shared love, you know, oh. whereas a cult tells you there's only one way to do it. And this is the way. And if you don't do it, then you're out. By the way, when you say find your tribe, you make me think of Seth Godin as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, you got to get your Seth Godinisms in. Yeah, no, it's so great. You know, it's so great. I feel very fortunate. It was like that he was there the year I was there. It was just like. Yeah, yours was yeah. a good year for sure. It was a good yeah. I'm like Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. <laughs> the the Girl anyone, anyone listening <laughs> right now, if you haven't seen Alpina's speech, go to the Welcome Conference and watch it. Thank it's you. It's a good one.
So I'm going to let you go in a moment, but I always like to end the show with this question, especially during a time like there's been so much anxiety stemming from uncertainty over the course of this entire year. And I think there's a lot of us, okay, the election happened. There was like the sigh of collective relief. And now we're moving into a season. The the asteroid hitting. (laughs) (laughs) The alien invasion. (laughs) My gosh. Well, we just don't, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Cities are shutting down again. It's like winter is, is literally coming. And, but, and I feel like you're a really great person to ask this question. What's giving you hope right now? To believe in your own resiliency, honestly. It's a question that um, my therapist that gave to me years ago. You know, I was panicking. I mean, whatever, I, whatever made me panic at the moment, you know, I don't even remember, you know. But at the time, it was obviously something that was really heavy. And she looked at me. And you have to also realize my therapist looks like the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> so just imagine this Ruth Bader Ginsburg-esque woman saying to you, okay, what was the most difficult thing in your life up until this point? Just think of, because you don't have to tell me, just think about the most difficult thing that you've ever gone through. And I was like, okay. I'm like, oh yeah, that was bad. Oh, that was bad. And so she said, did you not get through it? Huh. Yeah. She goes, well, why would this situation be any different? <laughs> I <laughs> you know, and then she looked at me dead in the eyes and she's just like, believe in your own resiliency. And here's the thing about resiliency. Resiliency is already inside you. It's not like vitamin D where your body can't make it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, res- <laughs> Resil- <laughs> <laughs> like resiliency already resides inside you. But the problem with resiliency is it's only activated by adversity. Mm. You know, and then that's the problem. You're not going to be made aware of your resiliency unless you have a trial by fire. And, and the thing is, once you're awakened to that resiliency, you come out of it feeling unstoppable. And you can lean into it even more. Exactly. Because you just know, like, eh, I'll get through it. Because I get through, I got through the last time. I'll get through it. I'll get through it. I'll get through it. You know? And I think that is the secret to my sauce this time around is if I had not closed those two restaurants, something that I was deeply regretting and remorseful for and just sort of like shameful over. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for having that experience and having learned from it because it showed me that I can get through it. You know, and if this third restaurant closes, it'd be awful. Don't get me wrong, but I'll get through it and I'll go on to the next thing. Alpana, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I always get. I feel like this is like a therapist. My therapist is actually retired, so I'm in between <laughs> therapists right now. <laughs> Can you be my therapist? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm always around. I'm always one Zoom click away. All right, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Raytier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference who's been working so hard this year. 
obviously Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage, but then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You do, 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 do. Weekly special. Weekly special.